Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name's Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon, and please enjoy our Sunday message. Well, good morning, Oak Ridge family. What a good time we're having, right? Those kids were just great. They were stealing the show. It was wonderful. And uh, it's Easter time. Spring is coming and has already arrived. And uh, the cardinals are out there and the, the robins are chirping. And it's just wonderful. It's, it's a wonderful time of year. And maybe we can finally say goodbye to that, to that winter we had. But at least we didn't have an ice storm. Uh, on December the 19th, 2013, Ontario was hit with a huge ice storm that in effect shut down the whole province. Driving was impossible, and for days many were trapped in their homes. Do you remember? Do you remember all the trees that were falling and, and uh, making the roads impassable? We lived in a rural home at that time, and many of the power lines uh, were out there, and they came down uh, just as the trees did. For five days, we lived without electricity. Fortunately, we had a backup generator, and a, which afforded us lights, but no furnace heat. So we huddled around our wood-burning fireplace in the den to stay warm. Finally, on Christmas Day, the power got restored. It was a difficult time for us, but for others, it was far worse. Many had to abandon their homes and go live in warm shelters for days. Tragically, in the GTA, 27 people died because of the storm. Such was the devastating effect of that power shortage. Today, we're going to look at Romans chapter 7. Josiah has already read it for us. It's a chapter that describes a power shortage, not a physical one due to an ice storm, but a spiritual one that happens in our hearts and can bring us to our knees. Then we're going to look at God's provision so that we can overcome that power shortage. But before we look at this passage in detail, we must ask ourselves a big question. Is Paul talking about unbelievers in this chapter, or is he talking about believers? It is true that unbelievers have a big power shortage when it comes to dealing with sin and its effects in their lives. And what often the world does is stop calling it sin because they don't have a remedy for it. Many unbelievers do, though, feel that sense of, of failure, that sense of unworthiness as they deal with the moral issues of life. How can I be a good person, they ask? How can I keep the law and behave myself? How can I overcome temptation to do wrong and get rid of the bad habits of my life? So this internal struggle for goodness described here might reflect the plight of, of an unsaved person. So which is it, a believer or an unbeliever? Now my understanding is that it is describing a believer who is experiencing a moral dilemma and seeking to work it, work it out. And one big clue is context. Context. It's the verses around it, and especially the verses that, that have come before it. So for context, let's consider what has already been presented in the book of Romans. Now, the big subject of Romans is salvation. In fact, 
It is the premier, premier book in the scriptures on the subject of salvation. It's all about the gospel of God being presented to us, the good news of God's salvation. But you see, Romans kind of forms a timeline of how a person comes to Jesus and gets saved and goes on from there. And that's where the writer, the Apostle Paul, starts in chapter 1 of Romans. He starts at the beginning. And he says in Romans 1 and 17, I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Right away he announces that there's a cure for a power shortage. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So I'm an unbeliever, and I hear for the first time, perhaps, the gospel, and it's an announcement of salvation. But from what? That's the question. Am I saved from what? And the answer is, I'm saved from sin. And, and we, are deuced, we are introduced to a holy God who is angry at sin and, and will judge it. He has revealed himself in nature and in his law. And so people are without excuse. We get these powerful words in chapter 3 and verse 20 of Romans. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world accountable to God. You know, it wasn't just the Jews who believed that the way of salvation, the way of living a righteous life, was to keep the law. The Romans were very, very law-conscious people, and this book was written primarily to them. They were Gentiles, but they had a strong sense of law. The Romans highly regarded their law, and they sought to keep it. It was the basis of peace and order in their society. And these words really are a shock to them. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now, this is bad news indeed. We're under judgment, and we can't save ourselves by keeping the law. Now comes the grand declaration of what Jesus has done to save us. It says, now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood, Romans 3, 21 to 25. So the substance of the matter is this. God justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, what does justification mean? It means declared righteous. I'm not guilty anymore. My sins have been covered by the grace of Jesus Christ. He paid for them on the cross, as Don so wonderfully presented at the communion time. So he climaxes this whole section of Romans, this beginning of Romans, with, with chapter 5 and verse 1, and he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. In this timeline of salvation, by the time I get to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, I'm saved. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, if I got there, I'm saved. Because it says, I have peace with God. God is no longer justly angry with me. He's covered all my sin by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm free from the condemnation rightly I deserved because of my sin. I have peace with God. And I stand in grace. I stand in all the blessings of God through Jesus Christ. Now my question to you is this. In your experience of life and in your interactions with God, have you gotten to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 yet? In your timeline of salvation, have you gotten that far yet? If you haven't, you see, you're still not saved. If you don't have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, if the issue was not settled between you and God, you're still lost in your sins. But you see, it's more than that, because the timeline continues. There's a change in Romans chapter 5 and verse 2 from looking at the past of my life to the future, from what has already happened to what will happen. In chapter 5 and verse 2 of Romans, he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, hope means, means faith that is directed towards the future. That's what hope is. It's a brand of faith. It's hope looking towards the future, or it's faith looking towards the future. That's what hope is. And so now he tells us the Christian has a hope, has a future looking towards the future, and it's a glorious future. The truth is that believers in Jesus have a glorious future indeed. We're heading for heaven, and the Lord is not only preparing a place for us there, but he's also preparing us for that place. Heaven is a holy place. So God is going to be busy making us holy so that we're suited to live on the streets of heaven. So God is transforming our character. This hope of glory is nothing less than the hope of spiritual maturity. He's growing, growing us up morally. He's growing us up spiritually so that we can be proper citizens of heaven. And he warns us in these verses that there will be some difficult times before that happens because we're not ready yet. So there needs to be a process of growth and development, and that causes suffering. That causes trouble. We've got to change. We can't remain the people that we were. So he says in Romans 5 and verse 3, suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character produces hope. It's making us into the people we ought to be. But at this point in time, we're so happy to be saved, we think little of the possibility of future troubles. So Romans 5 goes on to describe that Jesus not only died as our substitute to pay for our sins, he died as us. He took our sinful self with him to the cross. He wasn't sinful, but he took our sinful self and represented us and our sinfulness on the cross, and he died as us so that we could enter into all the fullness of a new life called eternal life. So in Christ, the grand announcement is this. We are dead to sin 
because our Savior died to sin. Now, believing that, we get to Romans chapter 6, and guess what? We're ready to be baptized. And the next step after getting saved in the Christian life is to get baptized. You get saved in Romans chapter 4 and 5, and then you get baptized in Romans chapter 6. We're going to have a baptism in the coming weeks. If you've never seen one, please come back and observe it. It's, going to, it's a wonderful experience of how people who have been saved and have been brought into the fullness of life in Christ, they now return the favor to God. Jesus died for us, and now we die for Jesus. We give up our old selfish life, our sinful life, and we say, I want to grasp onto the new life. And so I'm, I'm willing to lay the old life down in the water. It's a picture of death to the old self so that I can live a new life. So we acknowledge that Christ died for us and we commit to the death of our old self in order that the new life in Christ may shine through. Now in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, we hear more good news. We're not only dead to, to our sin, but we're dead to the law. What does that mean? Well, you know, the, 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 the government and the authorities cannot prosecute anybody that is in the graveyard already. They don't go search in the graveyard for, for people to put on trial because you're beyond the law when you're dead. And so when we died representatively in Jesus, we are now people who, who are beyond the reach of the law to prosecute us because we died with Jesus. We're dead to the law. And there's a, an example here of a, a married woman as she's no longer bound to her dead spouse. So we're also told that Christ's death has effectively severed our old relationship with the law. There are no rest, arrests in the cemetery, so the law is no longer able to exact its punishment on us. We answer to Christ now, not the law. So what do we have here? By the time we get to Romans chapter 7 and the opening verses, we're, we're saved by grace, chapter 5. We get baptized in chapter 6. And now we hear the glorious truth, we're dead to the law and we're dead to sin. It should be easy sailing from now on, right? Well, the answer is no, as you may have learned yourself in your own Christian experience. Because this is when Christians start to hit a struggle, a mighty struggle, as we seek to live for Jesus. Lo and behold, to our great amazement, the old sinful self is not as dead as we hoped it would be. So in the following verses, Romans chapter 7, verse 7 to 14, Paul goes to some length to describe the sinful nature within us, and he uses three word pictures to help us understand the old sinful self. The old nature is like a deadly lion. It's like a dark lord. It's like an enslaving law. A lion, a lord, and a law. First, the sinful nature is like a deadly lion. It is the beast within. Let's start reading again in Romans. Those of you who have their, uh, the Bible or a record of, of it on your devices. You could look at Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. 
Indeed, I would have not known what sin was except through the law. The problem is not with the law. The law is a reflection of God's holy character, and it's good. It's good. The law is not the problem. It's me that is the problem. The law brings the knowledge of my sin, and that's a good thing. I can't deal with a problem if I don't know that it exists, and the law shines the light on my lack of holiness. And you see, in the, in the text, Paul switches here from the third person in the English that he's presenting to us. He switches from we, the we, the first person plural, or the third person, they, and he starts talking about me. He starts talking about his own personal life and his own struggle with sin. Because the Apostle Paul himself entered the struggle of Romans chapter 7. In fact, the personal pronouns I, me, and myself, my three favorite persons, right? I, me, and myself occur 50 times. I think I counted them several times. It comes up to 50. 50 times from Romans chapter 7, verse 6, down to the end of the chapter, he says, I, me, and myself, about 50 times. Count them if you wish. So we get the intensely personal aspect of Paul's struggle. And specifically, in this verse, he talks about his struggle with covetousness. He says, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. What's coveting? It's being envious. It's being jealous. It's wanting what somebody else has got. Does that surprise you that the great apostle struggled with envy and covetousness? And he knew it. He was breaking the 10th commandment, which says, do not covet. If you are surprised by that, then you have not learned the truth that all Christians are sinners. We've had some mighty problems these past days with some of the pastors, the leading pastors in the church falling into sin and disrepute. It shocks us. How could a person who was so strong in the faith that he could proclaim it to others and others be mightily blessed, how could that person fall into sin? Well, the Apostle Paul was struggling with sin himself. As you know, I'm a Christian counselor, and sometimes when I share my personal struggles with some of my patients, they, they say to me, what? Not you, Dr. Rennie. And I reply, yes, me. For years, for instance, I struggled with my anger. I was short-tempered. My brother's bloody nose was a, testament, was a testament to that. Just to clarify, that bloody nose wasn't last weekend, <laughs> but back when we were kids. However the point is made, there is a beast within me as well. 
And only by the grace of God have I learned self-control. It's still not perfect yet. In the next verses, we learn that the law and my sinful self are not a good mixture on, on two accounts. The combination of law and my old self, they work badly because the combination deceives me and the combination uh, brings me beguilement. It, it, it attracts me to sin. Look at verse 8. It says, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. A sin is like a lion. A lion is a very smart, a very smart animal. They don't go after the people who are, they don't go after the, the animals that are fast and strong. They look for weakness. They look for easy prey. They look for distracted prey. So sin is like a lion stalking its prey, just waiting for the right time to pounce. I remember a story about a photographer who was out in the game park in Africa getting shots on, uh, of the game. And he and his wife came upon a pride of lions, no doubt sitting under a big tree in the, in the cool of the, of the tree on a hot afternoon in Africa. And the lion cubs were busy playing amongst the adults, and everything looked so pastoral and sweet. And the photographer and his wife got out of their car, and they set up their camera so that they could get better shots. Unfortunately, what they didn't realize is that one of the lions was lying in wait behind them. The lion waited until they were totally distracted totally enamored with the, with the little cubs playing uh, with the mothers under the tree. And then he pounced on the man, killing him. Now, sin is like that. As soon as I seek to keep the law, it is there to powerfully influence me to break it. It is the Lord himself who used this language to instruct Cain in the Garden of Eden when he was angry with his brother Abel. And God said to Cain, Sin is crouching at the door, and it desires to have you, but you must master it. You see, the beast is ready to pounce. And it's not the beast out there. It's the beast in here. Then it also says, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Sin lacks the full power to entice me when there is no law. But when I'm told not to do something, oh, just wait. The sinful self gets the urge to rebel, and the desire to do that forbidden thing becomes even greater. If you want to get someone to do something, just tell them that they can't do it. Immediately, our proud and rebellious self jumps into action, and we seek to do the very thing that is prohibited. Now, for instance, even though the legal limits on our highways are clearly posted, how many of us disobey the 100-kilometer speed limit on the QEW? I won't ask for a show of hands here. It says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when sin sprang up, I died. Now, when was this in Paul's experience when he was alive apart from the law? 
It was not when he was an unbeliever before he came for, to Christ because people who are unbelievers are officially dead in God's sight. They're not alive apart from the law. So what does it mean here? I was once alive apart from the law. I submit to you that this was the honeymoon period in Paul's life after his conversion. What a wonderful experience the honeymoon is. Everything is halcyon and perfect and wonderful. Those first days with Jesus when I'm walking in the sunshine of his love and the freedom of his grace and my heart is happy and free and sin is far from my mind. I'm like the kids singing here. You can't see the sin in those little kids because they're so happy and they're living life and they're, they're singing to Jesus. And the last thing we want to think about is that they're little sinners, right? But then the old enemy strikes. I realize that I'm still breaking God's law in one way or another. Paul read the 10th commandment, do not covet, and boom, he got judged because he realized it was in his life. And the lion sprang on him. Sin sprang to life, and, and he died. Now, what is this death? What is this death all about? Well, it doesn't mean I'm back at square one and I'm not a Christian anymore. God has given me eternal life, and that's the life that will never fail me because it's eternal. But you know, to, the, to the, the extent that I sin, the life that was meant to be, to be lived for God, the life that was meant to be full of life for Jesus, starts to dwindle. Wherever there's sin, there's death. And the benefit that God wants to reap from my life is lost because I lose time in my sin, I lose energy in my sin, I lose opportunity in my sin, and all of that gets wiped out of my life. I am reduced by my sin, and death starts to take over. Days lived in sin are days lost forever. And in verse 11 it says, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. Sin not only entices me, but it deceives me. Once again, it, it, it's, it's opportunistic, just like a lion is. Sin blinds me to the truth. As soon as I, as soon as I get involved in sin, the lies start. I start to justify my sin. Well, it's only once. That can't be bad. Or, you know, God knows that I've served him well in these days, so he's going to wink at, at uh, this little sin that I have in my life. And we start to justify our sin. God won't mind. He understands. He knows I need a little fun today. So he's going to wink at sin. Alternatively, I, my, my sinful self condemns me. And I say, what an awful person I am. How can I ever escape from this? I must just give up because you know what? The Christian life is too hard and there's plenty of people who are, who are self-condemned and they're believing a lie of self-condemnation. That somehow there's no hope for me. I've had that affair and I can't get past it. I cheated the company and there's no hope for me. 
I said awful things to my children, and there's no going back. And the good news here, you see, the good news that's coming is that all of that can be dealt with, but right now we're living in the, in the fallenness of it. So sin lies to us in, in a myriad of ways. Those lies darken our minds to the truth. Once again, the problem, it's not with the law. It just points out the sin. It's me. So in verse 15, I like the way Josiah read them with conviction. I do not understand what I do. Can you imagine Josiah sinning? Such a great guy, right? We should ask his wife, right? <laughs> He's just a great guy. Josiah is a wonderful man of God, see. But if we fail to see the fact that Josiah struggles with sin, as Jim Rennie struggles with sin, as all of us struggle with sin, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. And Josiah read these verses with conviction. And I'm sure he's been there and he's done that. The battle lines are clear. I finally realize that there are two natures alive in me and one of them is a dark lord. Darth Vader is inside of me. He's the, he's the dark lord. And he is powerful. A dark lord. And he's a bully. And he's a tyrant. And he's there to exercise his powerful control over me. So every time I want to do good, I end up doing evil. Every time I want to shun evil, I end up doing it. So there's the me that's alive in Christ, and there's the sin, this dark Lord living inside of me. I want to avoid evil, but that's the very thing I end up doing. And I'm getting beaten up by the schoolyard bully. There's a statement that's repeated every, uh, uh, every couple of verses in, in uh, from verse 17 to verse 20. It says, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living inside of me. Now, by this statement, Paul is not excusing himself from his sin. There's me over here, who's this holy person, and there's the sin over here. Uh, it's just not me, uh, and so I can discount it. No. They're both me. But when he's talking about the me here, he's talking about the me who's found Jesus and has life in Christ. I'm not the person I was before because I'm alive in Christ. And, but there's this, still this old self in me, this dark Lord wants to do evil. I got a split personality. By the way, it's, it's very discouraging when Christians go to see a counselor, especially if it's a secular counselor, who don't understand that Christians, by nature, have a split personality. Have you ever gone to the counselor and, and said, well, there's me that wants to do this, and there's me that, 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 that ends up doing evil? And the counselor doesn't understand. They think what you're doing is just painting a little bit of a fantasy about your life. No, it's the truth. I've got two natures living inside of me. Now, I suggest to you, if you go to see a secular counselor, why not help him or her understand by just telling them the truth? I have a diagnosis already. I've got a split personality. 
I'm struggling, I'm a Christian and, and I'm struggling with the dark Lord within me. And see what they do with that. <laughs> Finally, we see that Paul likens the old nature to an enslaving law. The old nature is like a lion seeking opportunity, like a dark Lord controlling me. And it's like an enslaving law because in verse 22 it says this, uh, verse 21, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Now he's already mentioned the law of God. This is not the law of God. This is, this is a law that's negative. It's the law of sin, as he says in verse 23. And it's more like a principle of life or, or a power. But here it's called a law because it acts with certainty and consistency. In science, when things act with certainty and consistency and repetitively, we start to call them a law. For example, the law of gravity. The power of gravity holds me down to this earth, and that's a good thing. But the power of gravity keeps me from flying, which is not a good thing. I try to jump if I'm playing basketball. Well, I, I clear about four inches. That's about it. Why? Because the law of gravity really does hold me down. Basketball players can jump higher than me, but this law of gravity grabs them as well and eventually brings them back to Earth. In the past, mankind would look at the birds who fly and wonder at their ability to overcome this law of gravity. If only we could fly like the birds. But for them, it was impossible. The law of God lacks the power to lift us up from the powerful influence of this law of sin. No matter how much we say, it's, or, I'm going to make a law that all people should fly, we still wouldn't be able to fly because we lack the power. The law tells us about sin, brings judgment for yielding to the sin, but lacks the ability to help us. It has no power. Verse 24, what a wonderful verse. It's full of pain, and yet it's full of victory. Thanks be to God. What a wretched man that I am, he says in verse 24. Who will rescue me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul finally hits the wall of despair. He has come to the end of his endurance. Like a man beaten in the boxing ring, he's prepared to throw in the towel. In effect, he's saying, I'm a dead man. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? I've failed. But then when it seems all hope is lost, he reaches out to Jesus and he gets the help that he needs. Verse 25, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, I said the pronouns I, me, and myself are mentioned 50 times in this chapter. That was his problem. He never got beyond himself in Romans chapter 7. He was looking for the answers within himself. He was trying to win the battle by self-effort, and he failed. You know, next to our sin, the biggest problem we have is ourselves our old sinful self. Our self-reliance is one of those attributes of the self. Some of us, like the Apostle Paul, are very strong in the self. We're very self-reliant. 
In fact, that is lauded as a great attribute in our society to be self-reliant. But in God's book, it's an enemy. We're like the Israelites who, when they hear the law spoken by God at Mount Sinai, said, we will do everything you said. When God told them the law, they stood up there and they said, we're going to do everything you say. And guess what? A few days later, they were idolaters. And they failed. It would have been better for them to have said, Lord, your law is too hard. We can't do it. We need help. That would have been better. Now in Christ, the help has come. The power to overcome is given. We've already read this verse today. Don read it. Chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've gotten into Romans 8 now. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. What a wonderful change. And you know, when you get into Romans 8, you don't hear I, me, and myself anymore. It's all about the Spirit. 18 times in Romans 8, the Spirit. 50 times I, me, and myself in Romans 7. The Spirit, 18 times in Romans chapter 8. It's all about the Holy Spirit. Because when Jesus saves me, he not only pays for my sins, but he gives me a new life. He gives me a new spirit. In fact, it's the third person of the Trinity, the powerful Holy Spirit living in my heart. I love to tell Christians this. Yes, your sin is great, and you've struggled with your sin. There is still victory in Jesus because there is someone in you who is more powerful than your sin. You've just got to yield to him. You've just got to ask him. Lord, please help me. Lord, by your spirit, please strengthen me. Lord, by your spirit, please give me victory over this sin. And now there's a switch, you see, away from self-effort to reliance upon the Holy Spirit. There's a switch away from trusting your own ability to overcome your defects and your problems and your sins to trusting the Holy Spirit to overcome by his great power. And that's what happens. Look at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. What a breath of fresh air for those distressed and despondent. What a breath of fresh air it was for the Apostle Paul to find life in the Spirit. Now, this chapter division is somewhat unfortunate because he's still talking about the law of sin and death. Look at that verse 2. For, for, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit has set me free from the law of sin and death. Still talking about a law. And so he's carrying over that idea of, of sin, bringing the law of sin and death into my life. And now he says there's a law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And we liken the law of sin and death to the law of gravity, a law that holds us down and like gravity keeps us from moving in the air above us. Now in verse 2, He's saying this new law allows me to fly. For hundreds of years, mankind tried to fly like the birds, but to no avail. So strong was this law of gravity. They couldn't overcome it. They would attach bird-like wings to themselves and then jump off cliffs 
It didn't work. Then, only 120 years ago, in 1903, the Wright brothers made their engine-powered flying machine, and it worked. Mankind entered the age of flight. When a jet goes over my head, I'm still like a kid. I look up, and my mouth gapes, and I wonder, how? How can that tons of metal go? Are you like that? Do you look up and, and wonder at that? How, how can that? It's going to fall on my head. It's heavy stuff up there. How is it overcoming the law of gravity? By another law that's working there. And you know what that law is? It's the law of aerodynamics. That's what was discovered in 1903 by the Wright brothers. The law of aerodynamics says this. If you have enough drive, if you have enough a lift, you have enough power working for you, then you can fly. You can rise up and overcome the law of gravity. And now we fly because of the law of aerodynamics. So in the spiritual realm, what is the law of aerodynamics? It's the law of, spirit of, of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's what it is. It's another law. Now, does that mean this, the, 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 the law of sin and death is gone? No. Just like the law of gravity, it's still with us. But there is a better and a bigger law that helps us to overcome the gravity and fly, and there's a better and bigger law that helps us to overcome the law of sin and death. It's the law of the Spirit. The thrust and the lift of that jet engine takes them up thousands of feet. The thrust and the lift of the power of the Holy Spirit gives overcoming power for any, any person who's caught in their sin to overcome it. I don't care what your sin is today. The Lord doesn't care what your sin is today. There is power to overcome it. And maybe you're still living in Romans chapter 7. You're living defeated. I can't break this. It's a terrible habit. And, and, and this, this enslaving habit, I can't get rid of it. Oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The spirit's right there within you, just waiting. You need to trust him. You say, Lord, please lift me up out of this. Lord, please cleanse me. Lord, forgive me and give me the power to live for you today. Romans chapter 5, I get saved. Romans chapter 6, I get baptized. Romans chapter 7, I hit a wall because I'm still trusting in myself. Romans chapter 8, glorious victory by the power of the Holy Spirit. Dear brother and sister, are you living in Romans chapter 8 today? That's where we need to be. That's where we need to be living in Romans chapter 8. May the Lord help us to do so for his namesake. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.